Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Support for this podcast comes from Dispatch Coffee. Get high-quality, responsibly traded, and fairly priced coffee beans sent right to your home. Listeners are getting an amazing deal right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout to get 50% off your first subscription. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. The Prime Minister, who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. Drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. uh, Sorry. 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 And I'm really sorry. Hi, I'm Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and wrapping up fish in newspapers. Today on the show, reconciliation after the bodies of 354 Indigenous kids were found in residential schools across the country. What will it take? And Trudeau made his first pandemic trip to the G7 summit in the UK. But did he achieve anything? Joining me this week is Lena Manifi, producer and co-founder of Ricochet Media. Hi, Lena. Hi. We also have Jessica Sandu, senior consultant at Crestview Strategies and co-founder of Boz News. How's it going? And finally, the backbench has its very first guest backbencher, who is also an actual former backbencher. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Romeo Saganash. We've got to put in a little bit of Cree here. I'm all for it. <laughs> So it's been two weeks since the whole world learned about the 215 children found in an unmarked burial by Kamloops Indian Residential School. Some were as young as three years old. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Estimates suggest that at least 4,100 Indigenous children died across 130 residential schools. That's an average of 32 deaths per school. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission says the number of Indigenous students dead would be comparable to the number of Canadian prisoners of war who died in custody of Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Now, communities are cancelling Canada Day, and students are fighting school boards on Indigenous education. 
In the days since these discoveries, politicians have also started to take some steps to meet the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. They've allowed official documents to reflect Indigenous names. They've introduced a National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. They settled a class action for Indigenous Day scholars who were initially left out of the residential school settlement. At the same time, they've continued to pursue two cases about Indigenous child welfare in court. Lena, we've talked about this before we started the recording. This isn't the first time Indigenous students' bodies have been discovered at a residential school in recent memory, right? It's true, Fatma. As as we were talking before, Regina Indian Industrial School had done their own um, their own surveying using the same technology, and they had found 35 children in unmarked graves outside of that school. And that was in 2015, 2016. The local Regina News Leader Post covered this news uh, for two years. National News didn't pick it up. <laughs> Nobody talked about it. And the same thing happened after the TRC when Mary Sinclair, you know, put out the volume four of, of the report for TRC, Missing Children in Unmarked Burials. And nobody kind of address this in the news and national news as this horrific event. Of course, finding 215 more uh, missing uh, and murdered children is is horrific, but it's something that our survivors have been saying. And I'm really honored to be on today with Romeo, who's a survivor himself. Thank you for being here. And there's been no outrage until this time. And so there's a lot of hurt being brought back up now and people saying like, this is not new. This has been covered. It's been going on. And now, of course, with the Dakota Nation and Manitoba, they're finding another 26 that are sort of unaccounted for in graves. It's going to keep happening. And we need other people investigating our genocide. We shouldn't be doing it ourselves. Lena or Romeo, do you remember what the political reaction was last time when those bodies were discovered? Because I, I do want to compare what's different and understand what's different this time around. Well, first of all, I think Lena rightly pointed out that we knew myself as with my personal experience, 10 years in residential school, the experience of having lost a sibling in unknown circumstances, died apparently the first year uh, he arrived in residential school. Uh, We did not know where he was buried. We searched for him for 40 years. We found him after 40 years, but still to this day, we don't know from what he died or how he died to the state because residential schools did not keep any death certificates. It was a difficult reminder again of that uh, terrible experience. No matter how much this kind of horror was bound to emerge, it still leaves us survivors uh, distraughtly devastated by this recent news again. We're almost at 400 if you include Brandon, uh, Lestock, in Saskatchewan, uh, Regina, of course, and Kamloops. So there's more to come, I think. But uh, from one discovery to the other, it's no different for us. It, it's, it brings us back to, to that horror uh, that we lived uh, personally. You know, I saw the eyes of children flashing in my memory when I heard the news. You know, those eyes that, that cried for help without tears. Uh, it was a difficult week for, for me. In fact, I got more than 29 interview requests when Kamloops happened that I all had to decline because it's still very difficult for, for us to talk about this. I'm, I'm so grateful you and you are here and, and Lena is here to help me and Jessica and, and, and our listeners understand this and, and sort of talk through the reactions and understand what steps need to be taken towards reconciliation. 
I want to talk about a few things that happened in recent days um, since the Kamloops discovery and also the subsequent ones. You know, we had an NDP non-binding motion that passed 271 to zero that asked the government to stop taking Indigenous children and survivors to court. Many liberal MPs abstained, including Carolyn Bennett, who's the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, and Mark Miller, the Minister of Indigenous Services. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau didn't show up for that vote. What is the point of these exercises and these non-binding motions if we're still going to court today as we're recording and challenging the compensation and justice and accountability that Indigenous kids and survivors need after this incredible trauma? I think uh, one, one of the things that I've always said during my eight and a half years in Parliament is that uh, these uh, types of behavior from the Crown or from the government of Canada, if you will, are not conducive to reconciliation. You know, when you keep bringing Indigenous kids to court, uh, that is not conducive to reconciliation. When you fight survivors in court, same thing, that is not conducive to reconciliation. When you spend between $500 million and $1 billion a year fighting Indigenous rights and Indigenous status in courts, that is not conducive to reconciliation. The Supreme Court has been talking about reconciliation for a long time. And one of the important cases was in 2004, where the Supreme Court said in the Haida Nation case that reconciliation is a process. So every time we take those decisions, as the government of Canada does now and then, these are things that are not consistent with the, the goal of reconciliation in this country. It's not just the laws that we need to change in this country, uh, that they be consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It is also the policies of this country and the operational practices of the governments. All that needs to happen, and we're still not there. And case in point, this court case again this morning. Can I ask, in your experience as a parliamentarian, do non-binding motions like the one the NDP put forward, do they have any impact? Uh, they do. Certainly, it allows uh, for public discussion on the issues that are raised in these motions, but also an opposition day motion or unanimous consent motion express the will of parliament. So in that sense, uh, we kind of expect that the government follows through when a motion passes in Parliament because it expresses that very well of the Parliament. There are times when government in, in my eight and a half years uh, moved on certain motions, other times just ignore them. But uh, I think it brings the subject matters into public discussion. That's also very important. Jessica and Romeo just described reconciliation as a, as a process. We've seen some very small steps be taken right, in the past two weeks. Um, last week, there was an announcement regarding residential school day scholars who were left out of the first 2006 payout of the Indian Residential School Settlement, granting every eligible survivor member uh, $10,000 per person. We also saw just this morning, as we're recording, the government announced that Indigenous people can reclaim their Indigenous name on passports, as well as other official documents. Both these things were calls to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission itself. Do these actions have weight? Are they part of the process that Romeo is describing? I think it's an important part of uh, the process because, you know, identities are, are so important, right? The, the culture is so important and doing whatever we can to protect it 
is incredibly important, but there's so much more to be done. Yeah, you know, a lot of them will feel like platitudes and, 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 you know, the easy stuff that can be done quickly. And I agree with a lot of those sentiments. And then on the flip, kind of to Romeo's point there, there is value in some of the stuff because it's forcing conversation in communities like mine where they've never happened before, like in, in a mainstream of my community. There's a kind of myth uh, that we share amongst immigrant communities like the one I'm from, where, you know, my people fled persecution where my people fled a lot of what was a, a colonial legacy, remnants of, of, of the British Raj, uh, and came to Canada. And, you know, the, the term that's often used within the community when, when speaking about Canada is, well, Canada's swag, it's, it's heaven. But a lot of that was on a false pretense. And I think being exposed to the true history of this country, it's forced a lot of introspection. And I say this as someone who was born and raised here, a community where uh, you know, I, I didn't interact much with, with Indigenous communities. I'm, I'm from Brampton, just outside of Toronto. Our school system never taught any of this. No one has ever seen any of this, at least from our institutions. Yeah, so I, I'm personally sorry. Uh, I'm personally sorry for the, for the lack of action I've ever taken in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you called the immigrant community out because that's something that's been weighing heavily on me. Can I add to that, Fatma and, and Jessica? And thank you so much for your words. There, there's a purposeful reason. It's it's a planned reason why people who come here, who are, who are refugees, newcomers, uh, immigrants who come here and don't know about this history. It, it's purposely hidden. And we need more and more programs to sort of introduce people and to have people connect and and actually see sort of the the unburied truth. So these little actions like, you know, allowing indigenous people to to use their indigenous names in official documents, it feels so tiny and so small uh, and so inconsequential almost when there's so much more that needs to be done. Lena, what's your response when you see like the things that are coming out of the government in the last two weeks? There's not a lot of words to describe in the human experience of like a crime this big against humanity and about genocide. And that's where people kind of fall down and their responses because they have absolutely no way of piecing together or understanding what it looks like. Even with the Holocaust, they had to show up with media and cameras and uh, and film in order to show people because they couldn't believe uh, such atrocities. So when you start to get numbers like this, then people are starting to realize it. And I don't blame people because the 215 um was a number that people started to realize um, the impact for the first time they had something substantial and solid to hang on to. But to be honest, the, you know, this, this denial has been happening from the federal government um, the whole entire time. So the Harper government denied, you know, $1.5 million to do the uncovering investigative work in, in grave sites during the TRC. Now this liberal government also said, hey, we'd give you $26 million. That was actually allocated in 2017 and earmarked and not distributed and not given out to any of the nations to do this work. So they can say this stuff, but how come they never distributed and given that out? And that's the truth. Like there is no action behind this. They are going to protect themselves. Like they, you know, they turned down the motion to declare residential schools as genocide. You know, that was defeated in the House. Why is that? Because essentially the state will protect the state. It wants to protect its they're implicated in this. There were whistleblowers. There were whistleblowers for 150 years in the residential school system. The government was a contract. Basically, they contracted out schools, which, you know, 70% were Catholic and 30% were Protestant, but they were contractors. And so the government at any point could have, like, asked them to turn in the papers. There's all these paperwork that has to still be done. So the Documents of Independent Assessment Program that they want to destroy, and Mary Sinclair and others and, Mar and Mary Turpel uh, Lanford are fighting to kind of preserve because they're implicated in those papers. 
workers. If you're a contractor and you subcontract and people do atrocities in your name and you get whistleblowers, they don't want to go ahead. They don't want to do anything. They have to protect themselves. The state will protect the state. Romeo, we keep saying this throughout this conversation. We've been down this path so many times. And we were down this path with the bill that you wrote, Bill C-262. And I see echoes of that in the discussion we're having about Bill C-15, which is now being reviewed um, by the Senate. Romeo, can I ask you to give me a quick summary of Bill C-15 and UNDRIP? Can you explain that to us and, and why it matters? It's very easy to read. Out of the 1,463 pieces of legislation I had to consider as a member of parliament, uh, it's probably one of the most innocuous uh, pieces of legislation. The article that talks about the purposes of the Act, Article 4, has A and B. A is uh, to confirm that the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is an international human rights instrument that has application in Canadian and Canadian law. What that essentially means is that courts, uh, as they do today, even before C-15 is adopted, have referenced and used international human rights documents to interpret domestic uh, human rights law. And that's going to continue. So this confirms that in A and B is the implementation, development of an implementation plan of the UN Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples that has to be done in collaboration and cooperation with Indigenous peoples. They have two years to develop the plan. So let's see what happens from here on. Lena also mentioned uh, the motion that your partner, actually, NDP MP uh, Leah Gazan, introduced to recognize residential schools as Indigenous genocide. I feel like we keep trying the same things over and over again in, in the government of Canada. We keep refusing to call what we're trying to address. We keep refusing to call it a genocide. We keep refusing to use the right language. What's at stake here? What actually does the government need to do to move beyond the same path they've been on forever? Well, um, I think the TRC calls to action were pretty clear about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, In fact, in the calls to action, the UN Declaration is referenced 16 times, I think, in 43 and 44, I believe, where the Commission called on the Government of Canada, the provinces, the territories, and the municipalities to fully adopt and implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as the framework for reconciliation. That was the basis of my first private member's bill, 641, in the 41st Parliament. I came back with Bill C-262, similar bill in the 42nd Parliament. And now this is the government, C-15 is a government bill. I hope this one will pass because we're running out of time. The UN Declaration was adopted uh, some 13 years ago in in 2007. um, And we still haven't started to implement the rights enshrined in this declaration. So I think C-15 is going to be important. With respect to uh, the characterization of cultural genocide, I've always objected to the use of uh, that qualification of genocide. There's no such thing, and I can tell you this as a person who specializes in international law and constitutional law, there is no such thing as cultural genocide in international law. There is genocide, and it's defined under the Convention on Genocide, Article 2 in particular, uh, with five types of genocide. And I think Article 2E fits squarely with uh, what happened with residential schools, forcibly removing children from one group to another. It's pretty clear to me. So we shouldn't uh, 
you know, be playing around with with this concept. It clearly happened in this country, and we need to be truthful about it. Uh, that seems to be the problem for me, is that we want reconciliation on one hand, but we do not want to speak the truth on the other hand. And that's going to remain a problem as long as we don't admit uh, to what we committed in this country. Can I ask you, what would the consequence be of us calling this a genocide? Why is there such a fear or deterrence to do so in the Canadian government? Well, I think Lena ta- spoke to that uh, earlier, and I think she's absolutely right. Uh, we do not want to admit this because there are uh, legal consequences to admitting it. But on the other hand, if we are sincere, generally sincere about reconciliation in this country, then we must admit that this is what we've done. It still has consequences on people like me uh, to this day. When I heard the news about Kalmyk's, it totally destroyed me once again. I still do not accept uh, the fact of what happened with my little brother. I, I still call him my little brother. I actually would like to ask Romeo if he thinks there's a possibility of sort of a third party, like the International Criminal Court, to oversee this. And if their hands are tied, I mean, they told Mary Sinclair he couldn't use genocide. Mm-hmm. That was a debate, and mm-hmm. that's the only reason he used cultural genocide was because the government does it. It needs to go to a third party court. Well, um, I think the uh, International Criminal Court has accepted to consider the complaint that was filed by the twelve lawyers from Canada. Now, uh, to what extent will the uh, fully fully analyzed and considered uh, the complaint uh, remains to be seen. But I'm glad uh, that the International Criminal Court will determine that uh, it is exactly what happened. I just think that this is a moment. It's it's actually a, a, a key moment of turning and that people can actually um, call out on this government to do the right thing and to um, pay the $26 million and actually distribute the money to do the investigations and to admit to their complete <laughs> responsibility for this happening underneath the Canadian government. And I, I hope to see trials. I hope to see trials. I hope to see criminal trials. There's p- people who are still living today who went to residential school. It's not that long ago. It's 1996 since the last one was closed. And that there are people who deserve to sort of see resolution if that comes with criminal cases against those people who are still living and, and committed the atrocities. If we have to do something like the Nuremberg trials, if there has to be something like that that takes place, then that has to happen. And there has to be no barriers for that. Political will from people has to be right now to force their government to say, like, please don't put any more barriers in. This is enough. Enough is enough now. It seems like we're we're turning to more and more third party organizations to try and, you know, bridge the gap that has been left by the Canadian government when it comes to reconciliation efforts. Jessica, and you spoke about allies and, and, you know, just just all the institutions from schools to communities and the work that needs to be done on this to create and demand the political will to to keep these efforts going. Um, I was interested to read this morning that SNC-Lavalin just announced that they're going to radar scan former residential schools to search for more graves for free. What does it mean that the private sector is offering to help? My personal belief on this is take help wherever you get it from uh, and leverage It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. 
wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Whatever assets come to the table uh, and, and provide uh, tools that will make the job of, of getting to truth easier. And, I, and I've been listening and, and, and listening patiently as uh, as Romeo and Lena kind of discuss this and, and learning. And what confuses me and continues to confuse me is how this liberal government has continued to fail on these issues. I remember now back in 2015 that there seemed to be, now at least as, a, as an outsider kind of looking in, that there was promise of sorts, a real change of sorts, that this Liberal government would do things differently, that Prime Minister Trudeau would do things differently that when compared to, say, the Harper administration beforehand. That's obviously hasn't been the case. I mean, there's a lot of debate happening, and, and thank God Romeo was here to be able to tell us um, about how that exactly works, because I'm, I'm quite cynical about the um, the motions being passed and sort of like to do this National Remembrance Day, um, you know, during TRC, that would have been a good time to do this. But the timing right now is really off. And so, again, I mentioned the documents that have to be done. But without like getting really trying to get to the bottom of every child story who's missing a murder right now, um, it shows no effort. So uh, my emotions are, you know, it's constantly just not fathomable that as humans, we'd want to actually reach out and make sure that other humans are okay. As, you know, parents, like the liberal government, most people are, you know, parents that just think about their own children and to be like, what would I feel like if my children were ripped away from me from an institution and then were not returned to me or I wasn't told about their death? Or sometimes like they didn't even tell people for a year, like, oh, your kid's just sick and they, they've already been dead or passed away. And, and to not be able to kind of have that empathy and then realize like, oh, an extension of my empathy for all children should be uh, the care for Indigenous children. I'm not going to fight them in court. I'm going to try to get to the bottom of every single yeah. child's story who's missing and in those graves, and that should be the only focus. Yeah. Romeo, if, if the stories themselves aren't creating the political urgency that we need, what will and who will? Well, unfortunately, um, I have to say that uh, I've been in this business for 40 years. I started uh, in 1981 working with the former late Grand Chief Billy Diamond. And uh, unfortunately, these things move very, extremely slowly. It's incremental. And it's unfortunate that it's that way. But having these pieces uh, put together, like a C-15 and other legislation, these legislative pieces are important. Even though I know for a fact that I mentioned earlier, uh, crown behavior or government behavior towards indigenous people will not change overnight. That I'm absolutely certain about. I've been in this business for 40 years, and, and I know that. But having these pieces put in place is important. I'll give you an example. My people, the James Bay Cree in northern Quebec, signed the first modern treaty in this country in 1975, the James Bay and northern Quebec Agreement. And although the provisions in that treaty were pretty clear, for instance, in Chapter 28, it is mentioned that on equal basis, the government of Quebec and the government of Canada will construct in each Cree village a community centre. And it's as clear as that, as I say to you. But nevertheless, for 30 years, both governments refused to implement that provision under pretext that there was no definition in the James Bay and Northern Quebec Agreement of what a community center was. It's called bad faith. And governments have been acting like that for a long time. Uh, so if C-15 becomes law, 
And I'm told that there's going to be a final vote on third reading sometime next week, either Tuesday or Thursday in the Senate. If C-15 becomes law, the sky won't fall. And it's going to continue to be a fight to make sure that those rights under the UN Declaration are acknowledged, respected, and implemented. Uh, it's always going to be a fight. And it's, it's unfortunate that uh, I have to tell my children today, as I am a semi-retired now, I have to tell my children, the legacy I'm leaving you is still to continue to fight for your rights and stand up for your rights, unfortunately. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order today, please. What's your point of order, Alita? <laughs> well, my point of order is I would like to do a collective thanks and a big thank you to Exignan for City of Victoria for deciding not to celebrate Canada Day this year and taking a knee. That's definitely not a point of order, but it is a very <laughs> warranted uh, note of thanks that I also extend on behalf of the backbench. Uh, Madam Speaker, point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? I'm sick and tired of the platitudes. And after the London terrorist attack, you know, we, we, we have the prime minister and others talking about Islamophobia uh, and then turning a blind eye to what's happening in Quebec. And what's the connection between Quebec and Islamophobia? Well, there's Bill 21, which stops Muslims, but also Sikhs and, and Jews uh, from wearing, let's say, religious symbols in certain jobs. Now, this is clearly a discriminatory piece of legislation. But here's the kicker. There's been polls on this issue within Quebec, which have found that the motivation uh, for public support on Bill 21 is driven by Islamophobia. Uh, and that is why people support it in Quebec, or a lot of them. So if you cannot make that casual connection that the polling, the empirical evidence shows it is, then what are you going on and talking about Islamophobia or the issue of racism in this country or the issue of hate? We're done with the platitudes, start fighting it where the fight is happening uh, and stop, uh, you know, making grand gestures that don't mean much. Listen, that's also not a point of order, but I'm still raw from everything that happened last week. And I will just declare that there are no platitudes on this, the backbend. Ah, good enough. Rappel au règlement, Madame la Présidente. Point of order, Madame Speaker. What is your point of order, <laughs> Romeo Saganash? Well, uh, Madame Speaker, I was pretty disappointed uh, this week to see this leader of the People's Party of Canada uh, disembarking in this province of Manitoba, this leader should have known that Manitoba had the highest rates of cases, not in the country, but in North America. He should have known that. And yet he decided to come organize uh, anti-vaccine and anti-mask rallies in this province until he got arrested. Uh, luckily, we had people Madam Speaker, luckily we had people taking pictures and posting them on Twitter so that the police can know where he was uh, throughout this time. I think that was pretty unparliamentary. He should have known that uh, there's a lot of people in this province that are doing their best, doing their part to get rid of this pandemic. He should have known as a leader of a political party, but perhaps he doesn't care. But I must express my pure joy at watching him <laughs> getting handcuffed and taken to a cop car. And, and, you know, at least Mad Max, I call him Sad Max now, and at least that Sad Max knows what it feels like to be a Black, Indigenous, or person of color today. Thank you, Madam Speaker. 
That is also not a point of order, but what a wonderfully <laughs> delivered gripe about unparliamentarian behavior. Sad Max. Sad Max. Support for this podcast comes from Dispatch Coffee. Dispatch is a great Montreal-based company that just wants to set you up with high-quality, responsibly traded, and fairly priced coffee beans delivered right to your doorstep. They source, roast, and distribute their own product and take smaller margins because they want to give consumers more reasons to get on board with sustainable supply chains. For example, their coffee Nova out of Rwanda is powered by a women's co-op committed to job creation and community empowerment. Our producer Tiffany swears this is the first time a coffee promising to smell fruity actually smells fruity. She smells the berries, you guys. Listeners are getting an amazing deal right now. Go to dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout for 50% off your first subscription. Again, that's dispatchcoffee.ca and use promo code CANADALAND50 at checkout to get 50% off your first subscription. So in the midst of turbulent race relations, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau got on a plane for the first time this pandemic to attend the G7 summit. All seven world leaders committed to providing at least one billion vaccine doses to the rest of the world. Trudeau committed 100 million doses for poor countries. They all committed to achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050, not a new commitment. Canada also announced plans to double Canada's climate finance contribution from $2.65 billion to $5.3 billion, so almost double. And Trudeau led a G7 discussion of China on Saturday and called for a unified approach. But this was the biggest source of disagreement, with the UK, Canada, and France on one side, with the US, and on the other, the European Union, Italy, and Germany, who all want a more cooperative relationship with China. Romeo, you were on the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development. What's your take on the last few days? Well, um, I think one of the, the positive aspects uh, for me is the fact that uh, they all decided to meet in person. I think that's important in international diplomacy. Uh, I've done a lot of international work uh, before I became parliamentarian, and especially for the negotiations on the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is one of the biggest forms at the UN for more than two decades, we had between 600 and 1,200 uh, participants each time. So I know the importance of having those meetings in person because at times you can quickly meet in the corridor or over a coffee or over dinner. And that's important to do uh, in person. And it works. I'm glad to say, for instance, that during those years of negotiations, I met a couple of times with the Chinese delegation to convince them to vote for the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And they did in September 2007. It would be an understatement to say that these leaders had a lot to talk about, mm. <laughs> given the present context around the world, the climate crisis, the health crisis, the economic crisis, the two Michaels, uh, whatever. There's a, there's a lot to talk about. Justin Trudeau will be, it was an important meeting for Justin Trudeau, I believe, because he's going to be the veteran leader uh, going into the next meeting, given that uh, Merkel has announced she won't be running again. So it's going to be the veteran leader around the, the G7 table. So I think it was uh, important for him to play it right. Unfortunately, that, that final comment after the summit uh, about uh, wrapping fish with the newspaper that uh, that reporter wrote for uh, was 
unwarranted, very unkind, and so, it sounded almost childish to, to me. And that's not st- statementship in my view. Canada's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to get into Justin Trudeau and how effective he can be as a world leader on the G7 table. But I want to first get into a couple of the things that happen at the G7 summit, starting with vaccines. Justin, earlier this year, Canada was criticized for drawing from the COVAX global vaccine pool. Now they've committed to providing 100 million vaccines around the world. They've committed 13 million specifically this past weekend. But at the G7 summit, Canada was the only country to not say whether these commitments were actual doses or just money. Now, we're, we're leading the world in vaccinations officially. Do we believe the government's efforts to help the rest of the world reach the stage we're at? Is that so perfect for this government? Uh, even internationally, <laughs> they keep everything ambiguous so that you have to guess exactly what is being given. This is so on brand. It's like, it doesn't matter what context you put them in. They're going to act the same way. And I love that consistency. I, I think it's important. I think the gesture is important. Um, if there's one thing that uh, COVID-19 has really kind of brought out into public eye is the great inequities that exist in our world. Patma, you and I in Peel have experienced that firsthand here locally, but then also at the global scale, right? You know, there's, there's countries uh, within uh, Asia and Africa and elsewhere that are struggling to get the first doses out while countries in the West are doing well, right? Respective uh, to quote unquote, the global South. So Fighting those uh, global inequities is important. I, I think this is a, a good gesture. Is it enough? No, you know, there's definitely more uh, that needs to be done. Keeping things ambiguous is not a good way to plan things and execute. Uh, there's been a lot of conversations on, on patents as well and the role that Canada has played in dragging its feet uh, on those conversations. Uh, so this country has, has a lot more to do. Uh, and ensuring that uh, as a world, we get out of the pandemic. I agree completely. Um, I also want to talk about the climate crisis very quickly because it came up at the G7 summit. Lena, just days after the Keystone XL pipeline was canceled by the Biden administration, Prime Minister Trudeau met the new American president in person for the first time, like like Romeo said, and expressed, quote, his disappointment at the cancellation. Do you think that his disappointment is about U.S.-Canada relations or was it about climate change? Because I'm not sure what the position Justin Trudeau is taking right here. Um, the disappointment is, yes, not getting oil into the, the port that they want to go into, which is, you know, this is a constant conversation. Trudeau has, has been pro, pro-oil pro and pro-gas and sort of getting um, bitumen out to the world. So this has been, has been his stance this entire time is that they would like to see more more pipelines come from from the Alberta tar sands to, to make it out. And this is just uh, one more thing that he's, uh, I guess, facing against uh, a world that's kind of getting beyond this, <laughs> this sort of uh, fossil fuel. Every year they talk about climate and uh, every year it seems to be kind of just swirling in place. <laughs> So I also really want to talk about China very quickly. It's the only conversation we led at the G7. Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, actually tapped Justin Trudeau to lead this one. Um, and it's an important one for us because two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, remain jailed in China over national security charges after Canadian border guards arrested Meng Wanzhou, Huawei Technologies' chief financial officer in 2018, and she was arrested under a U.S. extradition request. Now we're kind of stuck between our two biggest trading partners, U.S. and China. Does the fact that we led the conversation or the fact that we attended the G7 at all, will that have any bearing 
on ending the stalemate that we're seeing on China? Well, having worked for many years, two decades, as a matter of fact, internationally, one of the first lessons I learned is to understand the cultural and political perspective of the person you're talking to. That doesn't seem to be happening. I remember the first time when I asked uh, for one African leader in French uh, what concerns or preoccupations he had with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And the very diplomatic way he said, you cannot, you don't care about my concerns or preoccupations. You don't know about my concerns or preoccupations and so on and so forth. So that was a diplomatic faux pas. And I think that's this is what happened with China in the case of the two Michaels uh, uh, and the extradition case. Uh, uh, we don't know very clearly who you are dealing with, I've always thought that these kind of situations and contexts were incredible opportunities to do things differently. And I think we missed that opportunity this week. Well, I was going to say one of the things that a lot of people have been talking about, and Romeo, you mentioned this at the top of this conversation, is, you know, Trudeau will be the most senior leader of the G7 after Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, will leave. Um, Bloomberg even called him the dean of the G7, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and, and, you know, usually there's a lot of photos out of the G7 summit. And the photos from this past weekend were awkward, you know, as leaders walk down the Long Beach boardwalk to take their traditional family photo. Trudeau sort of was at the back of the line. And Emmanuel Macron, the French prime minister, made a beeline for, for Joe Biden, the American president. When back in 2017, Macron and Trudeau were best friends. There was there was a bromance going. Um, you know, there were no photos of Trudeau running, none of the paparazzi stuff that we've seen before. The sort of obsession seems to have dimmed a little. So my question for all of you on the backbench today is, can Trudeau lead international efforts in, well, anything? And does Canada have a role on the global table anymore? Yeah, look, Canada will always have a role and I think like the self-described soft power that can broker uh, between multiple parties uh, because, you know, who's scared of Canada? Um, <laughs> and, you know, guys like Biden uh, have way more experience than Trudeau and has, you know, solid relationships that pre-exist uh, and are separate from Trudeau. Then you also have to consider individual relationships between countries like the UK and US will always be uh, incredibly tight on, on world stage uh, and probably operate more closely to as equals or at least see each other in that way as far as like, you know, military strength goes. Um, and then you also have uh, the the whole question of, you know, Trudeau shine has come off a little bit over the last little while. Like it's come off here domestically and internationally. Uh, and and do people look towards Canada, which is, you know, a, a smaller economy than the others in the G7, um, as playing a significant role as a quote-unquote dean? Uh, and, and I think that's what the Canada delegation was referring to Trudeau as, not necessarily what Bloomberg was saying uh, he is. Uh, and it's all kind of sad uh, in that the, the word that uh, our diplomats chose was that of like a professor of an art school uh, within a larger university. Uh, and and not one of like actual uh, significant <laughs> strength uh, to fight it out on the global stage when you have China at the door, or at least that's how it's been painted. Um, and you know I, I, the the other side to all this is France wants to pick up the vacuum uh, that may be available with, with Germany taking a step back, and there's a whole dynamics within Europe on that as well, especially with the UK kind of taking a step out with Brexit. Um, so yeah, a, a lot to play with there. 
is uh, you know I, you know, I kind of made this you know joke earlier about Canada's back. Um, you know Trudeau's you know, fish and paper uh, joke. You know how how well is that going to go off? Because like these are little things that people actually remember and talk about afterwards. Uh, and if you don't have the social license available to you in the public, you know, how many people are going to be cheering for you in, inside back doors uh, when there's, uh, you know, again, uh, very significant players at the table? Romeo, you get the last word on this. Do we have a role at the global table anymore? <laughs> well, uh, one thing that we cannot deny is that Canada has a, uh, a reputation. It had, a, for instance, a good reputation on human rights. Canada was the uh, world champion on human rights for a long time. That has uh, gone uh, pretty low now. So it will always have that uh, some sort of reputation on the world on the world stage because it's called Canada, believe it or not. Uh, but uh, I don't think I don't think. And I've sat with uh, Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons before he became a leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. Uh, I sat with him when, when he became leader and then prime minister. And I've always found that he was sort of weak as a leader. Uh, so, and that doesn't help in my view. If you're weak at home, and I've watched him carefully over the years, you'll find it pretty difficult to be that strong leader on the world stage. It's as simple as that. On that note, let's adjourn. That's the Backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow or subscribe us wherever you listen to your podcast. Please rate us as well. That would be really awesome. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Romeo Saganish, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people follow you if not the Backbench? <laughs> Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Certainly on Twitter, Romeo Saganash. Lena, where can people find you? I just think everybody should follow Romeo. I'm on. I'm on the <laughs> same channels, but uh, I'm just so uh, happy and honored just to be on this um, the backbench today. So thanks for having me, guys. And Jessgarin, where are you at? Twitter. Uh, so at Jessgarin Sandu underscore or at Boz News Org. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Please take care of each other. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.